Anybody here ever gone through a drive-thru and then been told that the person in front of you already paid? Does that happen to anybody? Yeah. Terry, yeah. Yeah, that happened to me too. I'll tell my story a little bit later. But um, I was curious because I recently read that this is an increasing phenomenon today, that um, you know, this isn't something that was always happening. It's just increasing. So a New York Times article describes the experience perfectly, if you've experienced this. He said, uh, the cashier chirps, the people ahead of you paid it forward as she passes you your food through the window. Confused, you look ahead at the car. It could be a mud splash monster truck or Mercedes minivan, which at this point is already turning onto the highway. The cashier giggles, you take your food, and unless your heart is irreparably rotted from cynicism and snark, you feel touched. (laughs) So apparently a decade ago, this was a rare occurrence, maybe once or twice a year. But today, it's so common that drive through operators say that it happens multiple times per day. If you just Google pay it forward drive through you'll see that this happens a lot. Not only does it happen a lot, it happens with long chains of cars, sometimes into the hundreds, paying it forward. So why, why is this happening? Some people say the recent upswing is because our world is so cruel and the way that we deal with one another is so harsh, whether it's on social media, in politics, any of that, or even at the drive through window. <laughs> Baristas get the brunt of it a lot of the time, right? But uh, one woman in the article named Connie, she said she pays it forward at least once a week. She says it's about giving and letting people see that not everyone is bad and there are nice people out there. And maybe we can turn it around. But even her generosity has its limits. She also says, I don't do it at Starbucks anymore. I did it there once, and that time ended up costing me 12 bucks. She goes, you can't pay it forward if you're broke. (laughs) But some people are willing to do it at Starbucks. Actually, the largest unbroken streak I was able to find was 368 cars. And it happened at a Starbucks. you believe that? So this was an 11-hour unbroken chain of pay it forward. And it happened in St. Petersburg, Florida. At 7 a.m., a woman drove up. She paid for her own iced coffee, and she asked to pay for the caramel macchiato behind her. It's a really generous woman if you know how much one of those costs. And then that person did the same for the next customer. By 1.30, 260 people had paid it forward. The baristas thought that if, uh, if they closed, you know, and people were still paying it forward, they'd take that extra money, put it on a gift card, and give it to the next person in the morning. But then 6 p.m. rolls around. Customer 369 rolls up, orders a coffee, and declines to pay for the next one. <laughs> now, here's where I have to confess about my story. Don't judge me on this. I may, no, it wasn't me, thank God. I may or may not have broken up a pay-it-forward chain. A couple of years back when I was living in Dallas, this happened to me, and, and I got handed my coffee, and the person said, oh, the person in front of you paid, and I was like, oh, nice, and I just drove off. Must be my lucky day. Uh, I can be a slow processor sometimes, so I'm not putting two and two together, but honestly, my first thoughts probably would have been, was the person in front of me somebody I knew? Or maybe I let them go in front of me when we were pulling in. Somehow, I probably merited this gift. You know, the person knew me or they're thanking me for something. Because, you know, apparently, like that author said, I have an irreparably rotted heart that's cynical and snarky. But 
yeah, so I drove off, and it wasn't until I was driving that I thought, hey, what if I just broke up one of those pay-it-forward chains? <laughs> the cashier was so excited and then so disappointed. Uh, so, yeah. See, what's amazing about and beautiful about these stories is that no one knows or cares who they're paying for, who's behind them. It's not based on anything anybody's done. It's just a simple, unmerited gift. And that's such a rare thing today, right? I mean, we love stories like that because they give us hope. They show us grace in what feels like a graceless world. We're going to talk about God's grace today. Now, that was a cute example of grace. Like, no one earned their free coffee, right? But what if the person behind you had just cut you off, flipped you off, or cussed you out? Do you think that would break up a chain, maybe? Or what if the person behind you broke up your family with an affair, dealt your child drugs, or owed you some money? Do you think that would break up a pay-it-forward chain? Probably. See, the pay-it-forward chain is a picture of unearned favor, but it's not a complete picture of grace. God's grace isn't less than that, but he he definitely gives us what we could never earn. But it's much more. God's grace isn't just for the undeserving. It's also for the ill-deserving. And it's not even with limited knowledge like, like the pay-it-forward chain. God has full knowledge of who we are and full intention of giving the gift to us. So it's not just for a neutral bystander, but an enemy. And we're going to see the magnitude of his grace today. As we work our way through the text, um, we're going to ask these questions Who is God and what has he done? Who are we in light of that truth? And how then should we live? So who is God? What has he done? Who are we and how should we live? Now God's grace is packed with detail and depth and implication. But for this sermon, I've tried to boil it down to a simple definition that we can just work with for the morning. So it will be up there. God's grace is his favor freely given to those who have rejected him and don't deserve it. So it's just a simple definition, and uh, those who have rejected him and don't deserve it are pretty much all, are, are all of us, right? Uh, one time or another, we've rejected God. And by favor, I mean the regular definition, which comes with uh, connotations of approval, benevolence, kindness beyond what's earned. So our first question is, who is God? And when we ask this, we're asking about God's character, Over the past three weeks, we've talked about how God is great. He's in control, so we don't have to be. He's glorious. He's our glory, so we don't have to fear others. We've talked about how God is good, so we don't need to look elsewhere for satisfaction. So let's look at our fourth and final truth today and look at the graciousness of God. Let's take a look at Psalm 145, verse 8, and we'll see what the psalmist has to say about the character of God. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So God is gracious and merciful. God gives when giving is neither merited nor deserved. In fact, every time that God gives, that's what he's doing. Because as the creator of the universe, he doesn't owe anyone anything. That's just who he is. In the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, he creates a world that's teeming with life and beauty, where there was once just a formless and void earth. 
He creates male and female where there was once just dust and gives them some of his authority. He tells them, rule over this world. Multiply and cultivate the beauty that you've done nothing to create. That's like the ultimate pay it forward. God is the originator of pay it forward. It all starts with him. And when humanity rebels against God, chooses the promise of death rather than the gift of life, and plunges the world into sin, they throw their coffee into the face of the buyer. But he doesn't give them immediate death, which was the consequence for their disobedience. He bestows a lesser sentence, as some judges do. That's mercy. And God is there with new clothes to cover them as they venture out into this harsh world that they've chosen. That's grace. And he promises Genesis 15 that he's already got a plan to restore everything that they've thrown away. That's the graciousness of God. That's the mercy of God. God gives to the ill-deserving, and he withholds harsh judgment where judgment is due. In fact, this is one of the Bible's favorite ways to describe God. And one of God's favorite ways to describe himself. <clears throat> this, this description shows up so many times in the Bible. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And I'm going to say it so many times during this sermon that you're going to have this memorized. In his grace, God is slow to anger. He's not flying off the handle. Anybody here, and you don't have to raise your hand, uh, Anybody here grow up in an angry household or uh, work for an angry employer, have an angry boss where the smallest thing could just set the whole place on fire? God isn't like that. God is slow to anger, even when he has the right to be angry. God stays his anger for our benefit. He's gracious. There's no other reason why he does it. We're the beneficiaries of God's patience. In 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter writes, God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Romans 2, 4, Paul writes, God seeking our repentance through his kindness. God's slow to anger. And the psalmist says he's abounding in steadfast love, immovable love, enduring love, covenant love. In fact, his steadfast love is so tied to his character that we don't even really use that word steadfast love except to describe God. If you Google steadfast love, you'll see it's most often, if not always, used in referring to God. It's a faithful, enduring love, a relentless love that pursues and sacrifice. And not only does God have it, the psalmist says he's abounding with it. He's full of this love. Charles Spurgeon writes, what an ocean there must be since the infinite God is full of it. So who is God? He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He's the originator of grace, mercy, patience, and love. <clears throat> if we forget this, if we fail to believe this, we default to serving a merciless God not the God of the Bible. And we become anxious performers, working to earn God's favor, believing that we can stave off his anger with our own works. 
You know, Jesus gives one of the most vivid illustrations of God and, and God's grace when he tells the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. If you're not familiar with the story, there's a father who has two sons. The youngest son tells the father he wants to cash in his inheritance, essentially telling him, I wish you were dead. Give me your money. I'm out of here. And the father says, okay. And the son leaves with his money, spends it all, ends up in a famine-strict land, feeding pigs for cash, and even eating pig food because he's so desperate. That's actually Noel's favorite part of the my, my two-year-old daughter, her favorite part of the Jesus Storybook Bible is the picture of him eating with the pigs for some reason. She always requests to see that, no matter what story we're reading. But it's probably because it's so absurd, right? Finally, he realizes the absurdity himself, comes to his senses and says, I'd rather work for my dad than what I'm doing right now. Because his dad is gracious and, and his workers eat well. They eat good food. And when he comes back, His father runs to him before he even reaches the door, kisses him. And the son tells him, I sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be your son. But the father answers him by giving him the family ring, a nice robe. And he declares a household feast and orders that they use their most extravagant food. He doesn't even scold him. There's no, I was right, you were wrong. The son is met with grace, mercy, patience, and steadfast love. God's forgiveness is like that. God loves you like that. Now, that's all well well and good if we're the ones who are receiving the love and receiving the grace and the forgiveness. But the true test of how we feel about God's grace doesn't come when it's been given to us, but when it's been given to others. See, there's another brother in this story, and he's mad about the whole thing, and he won't join the celebration. And this is what he says in verse 29. Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Grace is shocking. Grace is paying it forward to your enemy. And that ticks people off, especially people who misunderstand the character of God. If you've been doing a a song and dance or feeling like you're slaving for God and for his love, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. And you'll believe that his grace should be withheld from people who aren't like you. Because deep down, when we're doing that, we think that we've earned something. And that's just not the case. Here's what his dad tells him. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. <clears throat> it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So grace is shocking. God is forgiving. That's part of his character. That's who he is. Does your Christian service ever feel like joyless duty? Or do you feel the pressure to perform for God or maybe to perform for others? Here's the really tough one. Do you enjoy conversations about the shortcomings of others? What are we trying to prove to God, to others, or ourselves? Just let this truth about God seep in. 
Truly saturate yourself with this truth because he is gracious. He is merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Believe this God and rest. Rest in who he is. Drop the facade, shed the anger, shed the anxiety. Our God is gracious and he's bigger and better than all of that. And we can cast those things aside because he's filled us with something better. If you look with me at Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes this to the Christians in Colossae. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule head of all rule and authority. So God has filled us in Christ. Jesus has, it was, he was fully God. And just as he was fully God, we have been fully filled in him. So God's given you everything that you need in Christ. You don't have to go anywhere else to be filled. Christ has achieved what you can't. He's pleased God where we've failed. He's lived the perfect and righteous life. He's the better older brother who, instead of uh, complaining to the father, went out using his own funds, using his own inheritance to bring the prodigal child home, served his own food at the table in celebration with the father. And you're that child. On the cross, he took the penalty that you're trying to avoid. He took the shame that we anxiously tried to cover. He identified with us the whole way setting aside his rights as God and passing on his privilege to us. So God is gracious, he's merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And this is what he's done for us. He's filled us in Christ. Christ who is the head over all rule and authority. There's no one higher, and you've got his love. So in verse 8, Paul's saying, why go somewhere else? He tells us not to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. So we don't need to hybridize our spirituality, whether, whether it be with our own natural efforts or the incorporation of, of anything that's not according to Christ. That means that we don't need to pray to angels We don't need to work out our karma. We don't need to stress over horoscopes. We don't need to worry about planetary alignments. We're full in Christ. Full. This is who we are. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ are full in him. Look at me at uh, Colossians 2.12. We'll go 2.12 to 14.00. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross." So we who are dead are alive together with him. We who are trespassers have been forgiven. We who had a debt against us are now debt-free because he paid it. 
This is the grace of God in action. The grace of God is powerful enough to change us. For the believer, this means a change in your identity and in your trajectory. We're in Christ. And that means we'll be with Christ and we'll be like Christ. He was raised to eternal life, so we'll be raised to eternal life. He's beloved by the Father, so we're beloved by the Father. He's righteous, so we're righteous. He's the Son of God, and we've become children of God through Him. We live from this identity. So let me ask you a question. Is it easy for you to say that God is pleased with you? If you just declared to someone, God is pleased with me, would that feel weird? And not just because it is a weird thing to randomly say, you know, walk up to somebody and you just say that. Uh, Take that out of the equation. But would you feel like it's true? Just take a second to think it. God is pleased with me. What feelings crop up? I asked myself that when I was preparing this sermon. And uh, when I say God is pleased with me, the first things that come to mind are all the reasons he shouldn't be. I mean, he knows my every thought, everything I've ever done, everything I've said under my breath while navigating Market Basket on a Saturday, right? Those are probably my worst moments. That's when I'm most aware of the sinfulness of humanity, including myself. But seriously, I have trouble saying that God is pleased with me. How about you? If you look with me at uh, Matthew 3.16, at Jesus' baptism, the words will be on the screen. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And this is what I really want you to hear right here. And behold... A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So brothers and sisters, we're in Christ. So these words are for us too. It feels so unnatural to even say that, but it's true. And we have to work to believe that. It's not because of things that we've done or things that we've refrained from doing, but because of who God is, what he's done, who we are in light of that. You're God's child, and God is pleased with you. Live your life from that truth. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves or look elsewhere for acceptance and approval. Ray Ortland says this, God doesn't love the rehabilitated you, the ideal you that you ought to be, but the real you. Now loved, you can change. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean up. He loves us as we are, as we were. And he loves us too much to leave us that way. He's not just going to leave us as is. I mean, can we all agree that where we were or even where we are isn't the ideal landing place for eternity? God's changing us. He's forming us into the image of his son. His grace changes our identity and our trajectory. So let's walk in him. Let's walk in that new identity on that path. 
God is gracious and he's filled us in Christ. That's who he is and that's what he's done. We're in Christ. We're beloved children of God. He's pleased with us. That's who we are. So how then should we live? If you look with me at Colossians 2.6, the word of God says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So let's walk in him. Let's, let's look to him as our means of acceptance and approval. Paul tells us to be rooted and built up in him. He's the source. He's our source. He's where our roots find nutrients, where our soul gets nourishment, our foundation. Let's start there. Let's go there first before we look to others, before we look to ourselves. And Paul says to be built up in him. So let's grow together as a church. Let's remind one another of the gospel, of the truth of who God is and what he's done, of who we are and how we should live. And let's do it in that order, not calling one another out or even calling ourselves out without understanding why it is that we choose change. When we face temptation, let's say, God is gracious. I don't need to do this instead of, I shouldn't do this. I don't need to envy instead of, I shouldn't envy. Let's say, I don't need to worry instead of I shouldn't worry because God is bigger and better. The gospel isn't just the good news that you need to believe to become a Christian. It's the good news that you need to live the Christian life. And lastly, Paul says that we should be abounding in thanksgiving. Isn't that what inspires the next person to pay it forward? But unlike a free coffee, God's grace actually specializes in touching the heart that's irreparably rotten. And his grace should inspire thanksgiving. Out of that should flow grace, mercy, patience, and steadfast love from us. When we understand and receive grace, we give grace. Our own graciousness is an indicator of our understanding of God's grace. So Leanna and I are in the process of adopting an amazing two-year-old boy uh, from the Philippines. It's been a very involved process, and it's definitely more expensive than we could afford. But uh, we applied to 11 or so foundations for grants. And on Friday, we got an envelope that told us that we received a very significant grant. It was a huge blessing to us. And we were so overwhelmed with the generosity and thankful to God for his provision that the best response seemed to, give, to be to give something back. It was, it was an odd feeling, like something you have to do to keep from exploding because you're so thankful. So we ended up donating to the foundation that gave us the money. I mean, that seems odd, right? Why give them money when, when they just gave money? They could have just given us less money and kept back the money that we gave them. But it wasn't a mathematical decision. I, I had a, an expression of gratitude that I felt would be stifled if it didn't overflow into helping other parents bring their children home. Other people experiencing the same gift that, that we received. I mean, what we gave was nothing numerically compared to what we received. And I definitely don't tell this story to use myself as an example 
Uh, don't forget, I wouldn't even buy the next guy coffee. So, yeah, don't take this as a moralistic example at all. Um, it's just that when you understand the magnitude of your need and the magnitude of the gift, something happens. So reflect on your need and pursue the understanding of God's gift in Jesus. And you will overflow with thankfulness. And that thankfulness will be expressed in grace to others and to yourself. It's the next logical step. If you remember customer 369 at Starbucks, uh, the one who broke the pay it forward chain, uh, when the barista was asked about him, uh, he told the reporter that he doesn't believe that the final customer understood the pay it forward concept. May it never be said of God's church, I don't think they understood the grace concept. If you sense yourself drifting into performance, into cynicism, criticism, anger, anxiety, go back to his word. Go back to his character. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Let's pray.